following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. This uh, could only happen in New York City. It involves three really, really well-dressed businessmen. Two of them are actually in the subway station, and if you've ever been in one of them, you know that they could get really crowded. So these men are pressed up right up against the line, and they're standing next to one another. They're both in Hong Kong suits. They both have important meetings that they're going to. They're both under a time crunch, and they're both poised. As soon as that train rolls up, they're poised to just step right on the train. The third guy is actually on the train. Now, he's having a harder day. He just came from lunch. He, it was Lunch was really bad. And so he's feeling nauseated already. He wants to go back to the office and take some Pepto-Bismol. And so interesting enough, he's headed that way, but he's also in a pressed car. And that car is so loaded that he's only pressed up against the glass right by the door. So all he can do is see the scenery going by about 35 miles an hour, and he's already nauseated, and it's smelly and stinky. The air conditioning's not working in there, and he's really, really beginning to suffer under that particular situation. Well, there's the two men waiting for the train, and it just happens to pull up right where these two business suits, the Hong Kong suits, are standing. Mr. Pressed Up Against the Glass is on the inside, and the door's open. At that very moment, Mr. Train Rider leans over and vomits all over one of the guys. Just unbelievably. And there's nowhere for them to go. They can't back up. They are pressed up against that situation. And in the humor of the moment, the train then, he leans back up, the doors close, and the train takes off. And Mr. Covered in Man's Lunch is looking at the other man, wondering, you know, wait a minute, I'm covered in this, and you have nothing on you, not even a drop. And so he leans over to ask him one question. What's the question he asked him? Why me? Have you ever asked that question? Why me? Going through a difficulty, going through a hardship, your day was starting off great and all of a sudden life threw up on you. How do you respond to that is typical of us would be to ask the question, why me? How would you answer that question biblically? What does the Bible say as to why we might have trials? Why does God bring them about and allow them in our lives who of you right now are going through a trial or a pressure, just a lot of pressure, and you really don't understand what the reason is? Can I see your hands? Anybody want to admit it? You're going through something, you really don't know what God's doing. Well, that's what our passage is all about this morning. As James is uncovering this discussion on trials, he's now asking the question as to what the reason is what God tells us the reasons are, and what we should do about it. So this morning, if you've ever been in that situation where you're asking, why me? What are the biblical reasons for trials? Well, take a look at your outline. Let me give you eight of them, given by Bible teachers all over the world here, and uh, I'm going to share a bunch of them with you that come out of the text as well. But first in your outline, trials test the maturity of your faith. They test the maturity of your faith. Listen, how you respond to trials tests who you really are. You can be doing really well, appear to be an incredible Christian, but the moment a trial hits, it exposes you, does it not? It x-rays you. It shows you what you're really like. And if you're uh, the victim kind of person or you react with, uh, 
definitely doubt or self-pitying or, or even being resentful, then you're demonstrating either a weak faith or no faith. And then if you're a person who's memorizing God's promises, you're depending on the Lord more, you're praying more, you're trusting expectantly while these troubles even get worse, then you're demonstrating a more mature faith, but that's what trials do. Trials demonstrate the reality of where your faith is at. In fact, there are times, the Bible tells us both Old and New Testament, where God tests us, does it not? Take a look at this, Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may what? Test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Trials test the maturity of your faith. Now you say, well, why me? Number two, or secondly, trials are given to humble you. Humble you. Here's Paul. He's elevated to the third heaven. He sees and stands in God's presence. And it's so glorious that God actually gives him a, a thorn in the flesh. Something to keep him from exalting himself. What does he say there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7? To keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from, again, exalting myself. That's what trials sometimes do. They keep you from trusting in your own self-reliance. We depend on ourselves, we depend on our thinking, we depend on our circumstances, we depend on our finances, and trials strip that all the way, do they not? They do. In fact, it'll keep you from pursuing your own self-satisfaction. And you and I, honestly, can we be truthful here? We are blessed people. I, I, regardless of the direction of our country, we still are a very blessed people. We have food. We have clothing, we have housing, and most of us in this room have massive amount of discretionary money. We can get a latte anytime we want. Interesting enough, because of that, it sets us up to be a target. When you are blessed in that manner, the enemy will tempt you with your blessings. And instead of seeing all these things as God's gracious gift, we start thinking that we deserve it. We start thinking that we're self-satisfied and we're not humble and we're not dependent and God gives us trials to make us remember that all the gifts in your life, all the blessings are from above, all of them. What does he say in James chapter 1, 17? We'll get there. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from where? It's from the Lord. And we forget that. I know you forget that because all of us do because we're used to it, right? We're a blessed people. Why me? Thirdly, Trials wean you from your dependence on the world. The more you accumulate, the more you begin to rely on those things that are not necessarily wrong things, but some of you uh, have work success. Some of you ha are an important person in your environment, your situation. You have high position. You have money. You have possessions. You have experiences. You have events. You have other benefits. And then they're, again, not wrong, but what happens is this. Are you ready? They become the priority of your heart. They become the focus of your trust. And you start relying on those things and not the Lord. And so the Lord gives us trials to expose that in our lives so that our trust is where it should be. Interesting enough, Jesus did this even with his own disciples. In John 6, it says, Where are we to buy bread, Philip, so that these may eat? And he said it. Why? To test him. He tested him with this material, you know, focus. 
so he knew what he was going to do, and Philip failed the test with a wrong focus. 200 denarii worth, he says, of bread is not sufficient for even them to have a little bite, just a little snack roll. And he missed the point. The point was he wasn't trusting in the Lord to provide in that situation. And trials teach us to not depend on the things of this world. That's what trials teach us. Why me? Number four in your outline, or fourthly, trials are used to give you a heavenly hope. Listen, the harder the trial becomes, the longer the trial lasts, the more you look forward to being with the Lord. Isn't that not true? Come on. Some of you I know have been through really horrific trials, and you're like, Lord, I'm ready, you know? And after you live long enough, you're just going, the smallest trial, no, that's okay, Lord, I'm ready now, okay? Let's just go now. And Paul understood that tension. Here he is in jail, hooked to a a praetorian guard, and he's writing the Philippians, and he says, you know, I know it's important that I continue on in this work, but to depart and be with Christ is very much better. And that's what trials do. You're saying, you know what? This life offers very little for me, and I would love to go home if the Lord gives me the opportunity. So understand, it causes you to long for heaven. Why me also? Fifthly, trials reveal what you really love. They reveal what you really love. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac was not only proving his faith, but it proved his love for the Lord was greater than his love for the son. Did it not? It did. Amazingly, every true Christian in this room desires that Jesus Christ would be our first love. Every single one of us. Now, it doesn't always live out that way, but every one of us wants Christ to be our first love. And Christ actually motivates us and encourages us to make sure that he's our first love, that we love him above every other relationship. What's he saying in Luke chapter 14? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, it is trials which reveal who or what you're genuinely loving, right? Now, guys, I don't recommend that you go home today and say to your wife, I love Jesus more than you. Okay, that's not really a a happy thought, but at the same time, you should be able to say, you know what, honey, I love the Lord more than any other person on planet Earth. And that's what trials do. They purify our love. Sixthly, trials teach you to value God's blessings, you know. You know it in your head, uh, you know, that, 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 that there's wonderful things in this life. You know it in your heart that you kind of desire pleasure and ease, etc. And trials are what shock us out of that. I mean, we're always gravitating toward what's comfortable, and trials shock us right out of that, out of our natural complacency, so that we'll value the things of God. We'll start valuing His provision, His word, uh, prayer, His care, His strength, His salvation. We start valuing eternal things. Amazingly, we all have immediate access to the Lord of the universe. Do we not? We have immediate access. We can go to prayer and immediately be in the presence of the God who created this world and the Savior who saved you. We can be in his presence. We can enjoy that relationship. And that's part of what trials do that make that longing even greater, that we would be intimate with him. In fact, uh, even Hebrews 11, you know that, that all the heroes of Hebrews 11, the heroes of the faith, they were willing to give up all this earthly stuff so that they could have heavenly reward. It even says of Moses that he would take even the suffering with Christ 
over the entire wealth of Egypt, which is an amazing thing to think about. The entire wealth of Egypt. Trials teach you to treasure what God values. To treasure what God values. Seventhly, why me? Trials develop your spiritual strength for greater usefulness. Paul confessed, 2 Corinthians 12.10, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Could we just put in there trials? Could we just put in there the pressure that you feel going through life? I'm content with that for Christ's sake. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am... Yeah, okay. You forgot. You forgot who you were. Because I don't care if you're 65 or 85, you're still a child of who? God. And He's your Heavenly Father. And He wants us to have childlike faith. And that's not ignorant faith. It's a, it's a dependent faith. It's a reliant faith. And sometimes we can live with Christ long enough where we start exercising in our own strength. Anybody with me on this? Sure you are. And that's what trials do. They rattle your cage so that you'll begin to depend on Him and walk through life as a child to our Heavenly Father. In fact, Paul, that's why he confessed that. When I'm weak, then I am strong. In fact, the Puritan Thomas Manton perceptively observed that while all things are quiet and comfortable, we live by our senses rather than by faith. But the worth of a soldier, he says, is never known in times of peace. And that's when the trial comes, we begin to really see who we really are. In fact, A.D. Batozer even said it harder for those of you who aspire to being used of God in great ways. He said this, it's doubtful that God can use anyone greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Trials cause us to live in dependence, independence. And believers who have been crushed by trials are those that use, the Lord uses in incredible ways for his glory. And then you would ask, why me? Well, eighthly, trials enable you to help others in their trials. I mean, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And he says, but once that's accomplished, you're going to be able, at the very end of the verse there, strengthen your brothers. Peter's trials were not only to toughen him up and to strengthen his faith, but to enable him so that he could help others. And we know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that we're comforted and we're able to comfort others because we've been comforted by the Lord through our distress. So he gives us that ability to minister to others and understand God has a purpose in your current trial. Now, I don't want you to shout out your current trial, but at the same time, I want you to be aware of some trials that you're going through and understand that God has intentionally given you those trials to accomplish all these purposes and more. And that's why we're looking at the book of James, because the book of James gives us clarity on this. God is causing every circumstance, every relationship, even those meant evil towards you, those relationships, to become a means to draw you to two things. He either wants to draw you to Christ in salvation, or he wants you to become like Christ in sanctification. That's what he's trying to do. That's what trials do. They transform you and make you. And can we be sincere? Can we be genuine? Can we be honest? If God didn't give you trials, you would forget him. You would start cruising through life. Uh, he doesn't always get our best when we're, things are going well, does he? Come on, would you admit it? 
It's when things get a little rough, we're like, oh, I forgot how dependent I really am. And we're then back into where we need to be. We desperately, we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Anybody with me on this? That's where we're at. We need it. We need trials. And that's why you can have joy in trials combined with an understanding of God's purpose and a heart, submissive will, dependent will. You'll be capable then of learning the reason behind your specific trials. Why me? You can begin to understand now God's wisdom in the midst of the trial. Last week, what did he say to us? Look at verses 2 through 4. We looked at it last week. Consider it all what? Joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in... He wants to grow you up, Christian. He wants to complete what he started in you. James describes basically in those three verses that life is like a variety of muggings. You know what a mugging is, right? It's like life beats you up. Life throws up on you. And life is like receiving a unique variety of being beat up. And the word trial there can mean either trial or temptation. Here it means trials. In verse 13, it's going to mean temptation. But it always means pressure. And all of us in this room have experienced pressure. And that's what he's referring to here. And understand the context will make it clear what he's talking about. But it always does so for the purpose of strengthening your faith. Of growing you more mature. So James asks, when life pushes you down and life beats you up, how do you respond? Do you lay there? Whine? Complain? Do you shake your fist at heaven? Do you try to go blame it on somebody else? That's the kind of temper of our day. How do you respond? Remember that movie chariots of fire anybody remember that well it is true that eric liddell and in, in, in some of his earlier races they were very rough and in the movie it shows that he's running a race and very early he's pushed down by another runner right and he's laying on the ground there and what could he have done he could have said unfair and whined and cried he could have immediately got up and ran to the official said foul foul you got to fix this he could have done what I would have done. You say, Chris, what would you have done? I would have ran over to that runner who pushed me down and kicked him with my cleats. <laughs> I, that's kind of how I was as a non-believer. And then you're going to get it. You get me, I'm going to get you. But you know what? That's not what he did. And, and, and literally, he did this. He rolled back to his feet, and he ran that race and won that race. What are you doing when life pushes you down? How are you responding understanding that there's a reason that God's in charge. Listen, you've got to have a proper view of God. If you don't understand him as sovereign, if you don't understand him as working providentially in every detail of your life, working all things together for good, then you can't count it all joy because you don't think this is from him. But when you realize that providentially that he's orchestrating even these trials in your life, including relationships, then you can count it all joy because you know that he meant it for you. It's a designer trial that we looked at last week. So that's what the text says. Last week we looked that, you know, we should have that heart that keeps going, that building endurance. You're to be light and salt. So you're to be attractive. When you go through a trial, people are watching and so the Philippian jailer, he's hearing, you know, these two men in stocks. They've been, uh, you know, basically put in jail. They're singing hymns, and he's impacted to the gospel. In the same way, as you respond with joy, 
people are going to be impacted. So now, now he says, not only have a right understanding of who God is, his character, responding in joy to his providence, letting him build the character of endurance in your life so you're growing stronger and stronger, but now he says, I want you to ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Take a look at verses 5 through 8. That's what we're looking at today. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Boom. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect you that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, the believers that James is writing to you are suffering different than you are. Unless you've lost your house and lost your farm, unless you're being oppressed by the rich, and unless you're basically experiencing this kind of injustice from government, understand you're probably not going through what you're, they're going through, but you all are experiencing pressure. That's a trial. You're all maybe experiencing some relational tension or maybe the, uh, you know, some injury or some illness that may even take your life or the death of a loved one or loneliness, or criticism, or weariness, or frustrations with children, or difficulties with parents, James affirms last week, when you encounter various trials, not if, you're going to get them, right? They're coming your way. So it's not an if, it's unavoidable. And James says, instead of crying out, why me? I want you to cry to me. Instead of complaining about your circumstances, I want you to connect with me and ask the Lord, give me the wisdom to know how to respond the way you want me to. In other words, verses 5 through 8 will say, trust God to help you believe your trials are his perfect, purposeful will. He wants you to connect with him. He wants you to. That's why he's doing it. There's multiple reasons, you just saw it, but the mo one of the reasons he wants you to be more intimate with him, more connected to him than you ever have. So you say, how do I do that? Well, he says three major things that come right out of the text here. I've made up an outline to help you track with me, so three points we want to take home with you today. Number one in your outline, ask for wisdom from your giving God obediently. Ask for wisdom from your giving God obediently. Everything I just said up to this point was introduction, so here we go. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be, what? Given to him. Admit it. Even though you know that the Lord knows exactly the number of hairs on your head, that's what the Bible affirms, even though you know that his thoughts towards you are greater than the sand of the seashore, even though you know that he desperately loves you, and is in control of all circumstances, there are times, would you admit, that you will say something's happened to you, and you're going, Lord, what are you doing? Right? Come on, are you with me? Please nod your head just a little. Thank you. We're all in this together. Thank you. You were much better than, than first hour. They were not nodding at all. It was very, very traumatic for me. You, you, you're, you wait a minute, why me? No, at that point, this is where the Lord brought you, and he wants you to do what he tells you in this verse, which is basically simply this. I want you to be driven to prayer so you'll ask for wisdom. Write it down. I want you to be driven to prayer so you'll ask for wisdom. Listen, your faith is not based on feeling. 
your faith is not based on passivity or philosophical thinking. It is based on God's working in your heart and your trust in God's objective word. And then you put that into practice, which is the process of wisdom. It's living out the truth of God's word. And James tells us what wisdom is later. You say, what is wisdom? Take a look. James 3.17, there in your outline. The wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and then gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. If it's not in your outline, it's James 3.17. Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Did you notice that wisdom is not described by how you feel? It's not described by even how you think, though that's part of it, but by good fruit. James is saying that wisdom is shown by what you do. Wisdom is truth in practice. Write that down. Truth in practice. When you face a time of testing, you have a strong need to put the truth into practice. You need wisdom. Say, Lord, how am I going to behave as a result of this trial? Now, you know the Jewish culture loved wisdom, right? That's why they wrote Proverbs. They loved wisdom, and they sought wisdom. And the writers uh, of, uh, you know, James, uh, who writes this to this audience, the receivers of this, wisdom was an understanding of the truth of God's Word lived out in everyday life. And you need wisdom. Can I shock you with something? Are you ready? Please hang on to the bench just for a moment. Hang on. You don't know everything. I know that's shocking. You don't know everything. Either do I. And that's why he brings us to a point where we're saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond to this. Help me to respond in a way that will glorify you and be good for me. That will bring, you know, sense yourself glory through my life and also bring me along in the way that you want to bring me along. That's wisdom. You know, interesting enough, we desperately need wisdom. Greek thinking was, if I know it, I've got it. Hebrew thinking was, if I live it, I've got it. And that's biblical wisdom. I have to live it so I know that I've got it. Wisdom is the practical skill necessary to live life to God's glory. And the word wisdom is Sophia. That's where we get that name from. And it is more than knowledge. It is the right use of knowledge. Now, do any of you know people who are really, 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 really smart, but they don't have wisdom? Now, don't raise your hand and don't point to anybody, please, in the room. All right, now he's right over there, okay? No, don't do that. But understand, we know people like that, people who've memorized the Encyclopedia Britannica, but they can't walk out of a room without banging into the wall. You know, they, they're super, super, they've got 15 doctoral degrees, but they have no common sense, and they have no ability to work their way through that. Well, listen, we're, that, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about not knowledge, but wisdom. The application of biblical truth lived out in practical, everyday ways. And when you're in the midst of a trial, you need God's wisdom to say, how do I navigate this trial? So you're glorified, I'm built up, and I'm accomplishing and cooperating exactly what you want. And I'm doing so with joy. I told you last week, there are times when a trial hits me and I actually audibly, verbally say out loud, okay, how am I going to glorify you, Lord, in the midst of this trial? What do you want me to do? And that's the only thing I'm seeking for, is to manifest joy, to look for wisdom, and to move on and do exactly what he wants as quickly as possible. 
Wisdom is living the truth of God's word. And that's why Proverbs warns this. And you know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not what? Anybody? Lean. Don't stop it. Stop it. We, we talk, we reason, we debate. Carlos and I go through a discussion together. What should we do? And he says, don't lean on your own understanding. Turn to me. Turn to my word. Trust me. No one else, including yourself. James says in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, and that word lacking, you all understand it's a banking term. You're really deficit in your account. You don't have the wisdom that you need. And he's saying, look, if you're lacking that, and your banking account's only got like 20 bucks worth of wisdom, then you need to expand your account here, and you need to get it where I'm telling you to get it. So he says, what should you do? Pray, pray. Pray for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Ask the Lord, how should I live through this trial? James chapter 4 and 5 tell us that the recipients of this letter, James, they were struggling with prayer, and we'll get to that when we get there. But understand, they had problems with that. Regardless, God has ordained this life difficulty, this pressure, this trial for you to pray. He wants you to pray. He's going to make you pray. Some of you have terrible prayer lives. Some of you would admit, you might be really honest with me, I, I just haven't prayed all week long. I'm not praying. Listen, that's why you have trials. It's going to force you to pray, and that what he wants you to pray for is what? What? Wisdom. He wants you to pray for wisdom. Yes, pray for strength. Yes, pray for deliverance. Yes, pray for those things, but most of all, pray for wisdom. Wisdom. Don't waste the opportunity God has given you to mature, to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. Wisdom allows you to use difficult circumstances for his glory and your good. Listen to James. He says, don't pray for wisdom just once. Hear me. Don't pray for wisdom just once. This is present tense. When he says, let him ask of God, that's a continual command, meaning keep on asking, continually ask for wisdom. You say, I didn't get wisdom. Keep asking. He's going to give it. He is. In fact, he's saying, don't ask God to do something here. He's asking you to ask God to give you something, and he wants to give you wisdom, direction on how to live your trial for his glory continually. And here's the capper. This let him ask him is a command. It's a, a command. It's not an option. He's not giving you personal advice here. You know, when you're going through a trial, maybe you ought to think about it. No, he's saying, you're going through a trial I expect you, I'm commanding you to pray, to ask for wisdom. Prayer for wisdom is mandatory. Now, think about it in terms of what God just told you. Because when you're being tested, and you're not driven to the Lord, and you're not responding independent prayer, and you're not asking Him for wisdom, and you're resisting His will, then you'll most likely remain in that trial and it may even intensify in that trial until you do pray and ask for wisdom. Go to your loving God in prayer. doesn't mean that he's going to fix everything in your life, but you're not going to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish in your life. So understand, Spurgeon said it this way, trials dig up the soil of your life and your heart and let you see what you're made of. That's what they do. And so when he does, you need to be depending and asking for wisdom. Your reason for this, Christ, does Christ love you, yes or no? No way. Are you really convinced that he loves you? You should be, and you need to be, 
Because he always wants what's best for you, and guess what's not best for you? Independent living. He wants you dependent upon him. And trials are one of the only ways that he can move us to be dependent so that we're not independent. And what does James say in verse 5? Who gives to all generously and without reproach. He gives to all generously. You know, the, the word generously is incredible. It's, it's single-minded. God is single-minded in giving you wisdom, in giving and answering this prayer. He's single-minded. And then he says, without reproach, all right? You ever been in that situation where you're in a trial, and you're in it three weeks, and all of a sudden you realize, you know, I haven't really prayed about this. Anybody there? I didn't really ask the Lord about this. I'm just enduring it. I'm trying to be godly, but I'm just, you know, going through it. But I really haven't asked the Lord. And you think, oh, now, now if I ask him for wisdom, he's going to go, you idiot. What took you so long? Come on, I'm trying to help you here. And, you're, and he just says right here in this text, he would never say that. He will never say that to you. When it says here, reproach, He's saying, look, without reproach means I'm not going to reprimand you. I'm not going to cast insults on you. That's literally what it means. I'm not going to revile you. I'm not going to scold you. None of that. You come to me, even if you waited weeks or months before you came to him, he's going, that's great. We're good. Here you go. He wants you to know, listen, when you ask the Lord for a loaf of bread, is he going to give you a rock, yes or no? No. If you ask him for a fish, okay, a staple protein, is he going to give you a snake? Yes or no? No. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. Your heavenly Father loves you, and he will grant these things to you. And here is a guarantee. Look what he says at the very end of verse 5. It will be given to him. Without hesitation, without reluctance, without reservation, God's divine wisdom will be given to you so you know how to live through your trial for God's glory and abundance. I'll fill your need. I'll pour out my wisdom. I'll direct your life. And guess what? I'll also be connected with you in a more intimate way through this trial because you came to me in prayer. My presence with you will be greater. My, your sense of my involvement in this whole event will be much more intimate. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to look. You're my child. Okay, I'm your loving father, and I want that intimacy with you. Would you please stop living independent? Would you stop, stop running around the store and stay by the cart? Okay, would you please do that? That was all for the young moms, all right? God intends that trials will drive you to greater dependence on him and show you your own inadequacy. And as all his riches, his has wisdom that is totally available to those who seek it with a dependent heart. That leads us to verse 6. Number 2 in your outline, ask your God with the right attitude dependently. Ask your God with the right attitude dependently. A prayer that does not take God at his word, that doubts his ability or trustworthiness is worthless. He says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, without faith it is what? impossible to please him. Let's say that with me. Everybody aloud together. Ready? Here we go. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's exactly what he says in verse 6. But we must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven by and tossed by the wind. James not only explains what to ask for, wisdom, he tells you how to, and that's in faith. And that's independence upon him. Now, don't be afraid or doubtful here. Sometimes you read these passages and people freak out. Don't be afraid. 
this isn't you about working up the ability to have faith. He's not talking about that at all. James here is talking more about asking in humility. Asking, saying, I trust you, not me. It's not that I have the faith. It's that I'm just coming to you knowing that you are capable. You are able. In fact, you can have plenty of doubts about your ability. You can have plenty of doubts about your worthiness. Just don't doubt his ability and his worthiness. Are you getting the difference? That's what he's saying here. He's not talking to you about, oh, I, I'm not asking in the right amount of faith. It's like, no, you just go to him saying, I have a need. I'm the weak one here. You're the one who's got all the resources, and I'm trusting in you. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, don't be independent. Be dependent. Now, you can, you know, have your prayers be denied, and your request of wisdom can be refused if you're not, in a sense, dependent upon him, trusting in his spirit, truthful understanding of the Father, but understand when he says, verse 6, but he must ask him in faith without any doubting. Don't freak out over any doubting. It's basically, he's talking about somebody who's really divided within himself. And he's not talking about mental indecision. He's talking about moral conflict. It's someone who doesn't trust God. Listen, when you go to him in prayer and you're going, I don't really believe you're going to answer this anyway, that's your problem. He's saying, look, if you believe that God is God and that God is great and that God has all these resources and God's going to keep his promise, then go to him and ask him. He's not really talking about weakness of faith here because a lot of us, would you admit that we are weak in faith very often? Sometimes we're like, oh, I don't know, and I'm doubting, and I'm struggling through this. The issue that he has here is not the weakness of faith, it's lack of faith altogether. He's beginning to expose that person. And James goes on to compare the, the doubting professor here to the waves of the sea. Up one minute, down the next, right? Anybody here know what he's talking about when he talks about the sea? You, you really know. This is not a, 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 a difficult question for Southern California people, okay? Uh, there's nothing more uncertain, unpredictable, and unstable than a wind-tossed wave, right? Now, some of you, uh, you go to the beach, and I'm still kind of struggling with you, because I've watched you at beach trips at the beach, and some of you don't even know how to open your beach chair. This is very concerning to me. Uh, some of you don't know how to tie down your umbrella so that it won't blow away. And you need some beach instruction, but some of you need some, actually, ocean instruction even more so, because the, the ocean is much more treacherous, right? Much more unstable. You can have a two-foot wave come in, and the very next wave could be six and a half, seven feet, and wipe you out. So one of the universal rules, again, uh, my, my lifeguard's coming through here, but one of the universal rules of the ocean is never, ever take your eyes off the waves. That's a dumb idea. Even at baptism, we have people on the shore going, six-footer, you know, telling us so that we don't get wiped out, you know. I baptize you in the... Okay? So, you know, we're just uh, wanting to make sure you don't want to turn... Well, the whole point is, is that the ocean is unstable, correct? It, you can't count on it. It's, it's up, it's down, it's whatever. And some of you are freaking out over verse 6. You know you shouldn't. Here's the point. Let me make it really clear. James was talking about two kinds of people. So this will help you. Those who pray to God, depending on Him for help, wanting only His will. Did you get that? Those three conditions. They're praying to God. They're asking for help from Him. And they only want what He wants. The second person that's in focus here that he's now criticizing the doubting one, it's those who pray to God, depend on their prayer, somehow my prayer's got to be good, and then they want only what they want from God. And he says that's the person who's not going to get their prayer answered, because they only want what they want. 
they don't want what he wants, right? Not thy will, but, you know, not my will, but thine be done. Uh, There are people who ask for help, but they only want what they will. Those are the doubters. And there are people who ask for help, and they only want God's will. Those are the faithers. So ask with a dependent heart. A dependent heart. Keep your focus on Christ, correct? Keep your eyes focused on Him, not on yourself. Listen, the ingrown eyeballs mess this up. So if you're looking at you, looking at yourself, looking at your faith, and all that, you're going to mess this up. You just keep your eyes on Christ saying, I need help from you. I know who you are. I know what you did for me. I'm going to keep my focus on you. Correct? Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Isn't that what Peter went through? James knows that. Peter goes, oh, I can walk on water. Woohoo! All right? Ocean splashing, storm going on. No problem. As soon as he takes his eyes off Christ onto the trial, he starts to sink. Same with you. Keep your eyes off the trial, off of your own heart, and keep them on Christ and ask in that heart, and you'll be fine. That's what he's talking about here. Listen, you're either living for the Lord or you're living for yourself. You're either trusting in his all-powerful, all-wise, sovereign will, or you're trusting in doing what you want to do. You're either, you know, your own master or he's the master. He's determining what's best or you're determining what's best. So that's the call here. Don't be double-minded. Don't be swimming in both worlds. James uses double-minded later on in chapter 4, verse 8 of James to describe an unbeliever. It's very clear there. So informing us that when he says double-minded here, he's most likely referring to a non-believer here. So that Greek word double-minded describes a church attender whose soul is torn between God and this world, between Christ and his trial, between this life and the next, between you know, talking about Jesus and then living for themselves. They're worshiping, but they're not submitting to Christ as master. They're double-souled, double-minded. In Pilgrim's Progress, this person is called Mr. Facing Both Ways. They want it all. They want this world and they want Christ. This make-believer is a hypocrite. He's saying, don't be that. They occasionally believe in God, they attend church, but they fail to trust Christ when trials come. And that's exactly what the parable of the soils tells us. Here they are, the sown gospel comes, and they spring up, they go to church, they look like a real believer, but then when the trials hit, when the persecutions hit, when the difficulties and the pressures of life hit, what's he say? Matthew 13, 21, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, he wasn't the real thing, and when affliction and persecution arise, the trials, the pressure because of the word, because of their stand, because of their Christianity, they immediately fall away. They were never saved in the first place. And James even adds, circle this word in verse 8, unstable. Unstable means unsteady, fickle, staggering, reeling like a drunken man. And he's very pointed. This guy claims to be a Christian, but his reaction to trials show that he's not. And when he goes through a severe trial, he turns to human resources instead of singularly trusting the Lord for answers and for help. Get your focus on Christ. Or, sometimes what happens to people, and you've seen this, I've seen this, they become bitter, they become resentful, and they seek no help at all. One of the things I love about our church is we tell people, look, we want you to be involved in ministry. A normal church person is involved in ministry. Uh, this is what we are. This is what a, a normal, everyday, average Christian is ministering their giftedness. They're serving one another. But if you come from another church and you get beat up, 
don't serve. Just come and sit under the word, be refreshed, be renewed. We want that for you. We want the Lord to heal you. But there are people every once in a while, there's not many, but I run into them, and they're still bitter. They're still angry, and they're not trusting that the Lord had a purpose, even in that painful experience at another church. And I just want to tell you, please, your Savior is worthy of your trust. And He is worthy of your, your trust in the midst of saying He controlled that whole situation. And maybe you didn't respond in the right way. Maybe you doubted Him through that whole experience. But understand, it was for a purpose that you would be more of the man or woman that God wants you to become. So let it go. As somebody who's experienced great trials in the past, I'm telling you, let it go. Just let it go. Move on. We have more to hope for in the future than anything in our past. Can I hear an amen to that? We do. And right now, we're poised, even as a church, to be influential in this valley. Just by people saying, I'm trusting the Lord. I have joy in the midst of my trial. It's an incredible opportunity. So James is saying the Lord will help you in your trials, but receive wisdom. Okay, count it all joy. You can trust his character, but get the help you need from Christ to endure trials. Don't whine, why me, but ask the Lord in prayer. Depend on his character and his promises, not your thinking, not your feelings, not your strength, not your supposed spirituality. Ask with a heart loyal to Christ. He's my first love. I trust him, loving him above anyone and anything else. So then you can then take this home. Let's take it home. Ready? Letter A in your outline. Conversion. Conversion. The only way you can ask in faith is that God has given you faith. Faith is a gift from God. It's God gives it. You'll not trust God in trials unless you have Christ's heart transforming salvation and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling power to live through you. You have to be born again you got to be born again, made new, given faith to believe in salvation and the same faith to live sanctification. Do you have a transformed, converted heart? Because he's the only one that can pull that off. You can't do it. He must do it. So you cry out to him, give me a new heart, a heart that says, I want to do what you will. I want to manifest joy. I want to ask for wisdom. Give me that heart. Secondly, B, choose like Joshua who stared straight in the eyes of every single Israelite, and he looked at him as he said this, choose yourselves today whom you will serve. Right? The false gods of your day or the only true God. Stop sitting on the fence. Stop remaining in the middle. Stop waffling in your indecision and surrender to Jesus Christ. Listen, you are not going to win your battle against the God of the universe. You stand condemned before the God of the universe and you will not win this battle unless you submit and surrender to Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? You have got to say, I've stopped trying to live life my way and I'm now going to live life his way. I'm going to believe that he provided salvation for me. I'm going to trust him and surrender to him. You got to get there, friends. You say, as for me and my house, we will what? serve the Lord. No matter what trial you face, be hot for Christ. Be hot. If you can't be hot, then be cold. But don't be the spit out of my mouth lukewarm. Don't be that person. So many people who are trying to serve two masters, either Christ is your master or you are the master. Either way. And make Christ your master. He loves you. 
He died for you. He's the only faith on planet earth where he did the work of salvation. You don't have to earn it. It's a free gift. But once you surrender to him, then you are his and he is yours. Letter C, complaining. Complaining. Stop whining. Stop being critical. Listen, I, I just have to tell you, just out of honesty, you know, when I preach this stuff, this is all splashing back on me too, right? Okay, so this is for Chris. Don't stop whining, Chris. Sometimes in my own quietness, I don't do it very much out loud, but in my own quietness, I whine. Anybody else a whiner here? Anybody? Oh, thank you for admitting it. Thank you, thank you. I feel so much better now. I really do. I really mean that. Stop comparing your trials to somebody else. Stop doing it. James says trials are designer trials. They're very, just for you. Just for you. God picked your family. God picked your environment. God picked your salary. God picked your race. God picked your wealth. God picked your looks. Everything. Your trials are designed by Christ just for you. You're no better, no worse than anybody else. What crushes you, other people laugh at. Have you noticed that? You're devastated. And they're like, what's the big deal? I go through that all the time. They're like, look, it's not for you. It's for me. And for me, that's the crusher. Right? So understand. Be careful how you say to others, be counted all joy. All right? And understand what crushes you doesn't crush others. Just ask God for wisdom to deal with your specific many-colored trials. Don't whine. Be a witness and put Christ on display. It's the happiest place to be. Trust me. It's the best place to be to rejoice in trials. Letter D, conviction. Most of the wisdom you need that James tells you to pray for is already found in God's revealed word. It's already there. The precepts, the proverbs, the parables, the principles, it's all there. You just have to trust it. And you say, well, I don't know where to go. Then talk to somebody. Or get a good Bible program and look it up, you know, and you say, well, I want to look up my trial. Well, then look up your trial and find the verses that relate to your trial. But you're crazy, one more time, to not have the word in your life over the issues that you're battling with. You are crazy. You've got no sword. You've got no defense. You're not going to be strong, and you're not going to have wisdom unless you're putting those verses in your life that are related to the trials that you're facing. You've got to have them. So the question is, are you going to be over the Bible, or are you going to be under the Bible? Over the Bible means you're evaluating it. I don't know. If I, uh, under the Bible is, I'm going to do what the Bible says. Be under the Scripture, under its authority. Read it, study it, listen to it, meditate it, memorize. Get the help you need. Find the verses you need and just take your stand on the Word. And the last one is Christ. Christ. Notice James 1.5. Would you look at it? It says, let him ask of God. If you look at James 1.7, it says, from the Lord. And here's, here's the good news. What is Christ trying to do? He's trying to draw you closer to himself. When we're in eternity and we are intimate with Christ and we're going to know him in a whole new, deeper way, we're going to look back on our lives to some degree and we go, how foolish it was me that I wasn't just immediately in his presence, praying to him, asking him, and being intimate with him. You know what the Christian life is, right? The Christian life is knowing Christ. Knowing experientially, relationally, Jesus Christ. And you, every one of you, have the opportunity at any moment to enter into his presence through prayer because of what he's done for you. 
and to be in the presence of the Lord of the universe who has all power, all wisdom, and, and never makes a mistake to help you, guide you through the difficulties and the, and the struggles of life. Let's make sure that Jesus Christ is our heart cry. Let's make sure that Jesus Christ is the one that's like, you know what, I'm going to be in prayer until my heart is at peace, till my heart is settled, that we don't just keep grinding through stuff, that we're saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to depend on you. Amen to that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that your word is clear. Thank you that you teach us how to go through the difficulties of life, and you Teach us how to, how to survive under pressure. And sometimes there are some folks here that are going through some issues that are so deep and they're so painful and, and they're almost excruciating. They're almost at the bottom of the barrel. Lord, give them an extra measure of your grace, your wisdom. Give them an extra measure of awareness of your love and your peace. And Father, that they would be trusting in you. And Father, I know there's one or two or three or some in our midst who don't know you. Lord, would you please awaken them, draw them to yourself. Would you help them to see that they're empty in trials, that they have no resources, they're doubting, they're constantly never relying on you. Father, bring them to a point where they would be awakened to the reality of who you are and to see their life now in line with you and walking with you and not against you. And Father, we'll give you the glory for what you'll do. We pray that you would be pleased with how we worship and how we worship is to actually demonstrate wisdom that we would walk with you. That it wouldn't just be that we heard a message, that we would then our lives, we want them to line up under your truth and we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.